Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Jonathan Meyerson-Katz. Jonathan received the James Foley Medal Medal for Courage in journalism for reporting from Haiti. His first book, The Big Truck That Went By, was shortlisted for the Penn John Kenneth Galbraith Award for Nonfiction and won the Overseas Press Club's Cornelius Ryan Award, the J. Anthony Lucas Work in Progress Award, and the WOLA Duke Book Award for Human Rights in Latin America. His work appears in the New York Times, Foreign Policy, and elsewhere. He has received fellowships from New America and the Logan Nonfiction Program. He lives with his wife and daughter in Charlottesville, Virginia, home of Dave Matthews Band, my favorite (laughs) band. And um, his most recent book, Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines, and The Making and Breaking of America's Empire is out now. That's the book we will be spending most of our time on. And I want to Thanks, Jonathan, for being on the show because he's not 100% himself, but he is forwarding through this. So thank you so much for being on The Deep Dive. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. The The book is wonderful book. It is a, I, I think, to a lot of people who are not deep historians, um, which is sadly most Americans, most of the things highlighted in the book will be new. I think even for those who might have some idea of bits and pieces of this history might not have it as put together as you have in this volume. So so this is a book in in my mind that spans, I would say, a hundred plus years of of US domestic and, and foreign policy interventions as a as an empire. And you've managed to make it interesting. You've managed to make it filled with intrigue and espionage. And I'm gonna start where most people start right at the beginning. And um there's a very interesting um, story that's told about Smedley Butler as he has shady meetings with various industrialists and they are courting, I, th- I think it's safe to say without giving away too much of a, a very interesting prologue in the book, courting fascism. Yeah. So wh- why did you choose to start there? And January 6th, are we back there again? <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, those are all great questions. So it's interesting. So, you know, as, as I, I, you know, I was working on this book for really the last seven years. Uh, you know, I was writing it for, for five. I started writing it in, in 2016. Um, and you know, when I, when I set out to write gangsters originally, you know, this was the, was the summer of 2016 is when I really started on it in, in earnest. I thought, you know, I was going to be writing a book about sort of the, the rise of, you know, America's neoliberal empire, which was just, about to reach is like apotheosis with like the the presidency of Hillary Clinton, right? That I was going to sort of be explaining, you know, pulling back the curtain on on things that you know maybe most people weren't paying attention to that the United States was was doing and, and had done in the world. Little did I know, little did anyone else know, including Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, what was going to end up happening that fall. Um, and so, really, you know, as as you as you note, like you know the the, the way that I wrote the book, there's the historical material. And then there's the modern day stuff. And the historical material, I kept learning more stuff. I kept finding more things. I kept digging out more things from the archives. But more or less, like the history 
at least in his broad outlines, stayed the same. The present, <laughs> you know what happened with the present, right? So it just so happens that I was writing what ended up being the, the, the last chapter of the book and the prologue at the same time in late 2020, early 2021. So people who are not familiar with, with Smedley Butler, I mean, very, very briefly, he's a Marine. He joined the Marine Corps in 1898 to fight in uh, the war against Spain and Cuba. And then from there went, you know, basically everywhere that America's empire went, every war that, that we fought in, every every overseas intervention, but then spent the last 10 years of his life as an anti-war, anti-imperialist activist. And this episode that you're talking about is known as The Business Plot, where in 1933, 1934, Butler blew the whistle in front of a congressional committee about a group of industrialists and, and bankers who are really about a, a stockbroker or a, a bond salesman, excuse me, who was claiming to represent the industrialists and the bankers who wanted him to overthrow and help overthrow Franklin Delano Roosevelt and basically install the first fascist dictator of the United States. And people who, you know, of the small number of people in the world who have heard of Smedley Butler a significant proportion of that small group of people will have heard of the business plot. Again, it's not history that isn't known to most people, but you know, books are often sort of self-selecting audiences. And if you write a book about Smedley Butler, people are going to pick this book up. They're going to know about this. So I knew I was going to have to deal with the business plot in some way. And I wasn't sure, you know, well, I just sort of like tack it on at the end. <laughs> like how integral can I, can I make this to, and how integral can this be to the overall plot of the book and the making and breaking of America's empire. And then history, as it happened in our own lifetimes, gave me the answer. Because I started noting really in you know the, the run-up to election day and then on election night, and then in the weeks uh, and, and the, the two months that followed, even before January 6th, that Donald Trump was trying to perpetrate some kind of a coup or a self-coup, an autogolpe is the, the term of art in Latin America, to overthrow the United States government and, and overthrow the results of the 2020 election and, and essentially have himself reinstalled for at least another term. Um, once people start throwing out elections, it's hard to know exactly how long their terms are going to last. Yeah, but. that becomes a slippery slope. <laughs> and I actually wrote, I have a newsletter, it's called The Racket, and I, I actually wrote a newsletter on January 4th 2021 about comparing what Trump was doing to the, the the things that I had read and the things that I was actively doing research on at that moment about the business plot. And obviously, two days later, um, I realized how prescient or accidentally prescient or whatever that had been when it actually you know turned into a, a, a violent assault on, on the Capitol, which more or less was the sort of thing that the, the business plotters, however many of them were, wanted wanted Smedley Butler to to. Uh, be leading. So at that moment, I realized, okay, <laughs> uh, this is not going to be tacked on to the end of the book. This is going to be, you know, right at the front. It ends up sort of bookending the, the action. You, It's the prologue, and then and then we come back to it in, in the last chapter. But the other thing that it did was it really, it brought into high relief the, the ways in which empire building and imperialism abroad comes home in the form of Violent authoritarianism and and fascism. I, I lean on on great thinkers like uh, Ame Césaire and, and Franz Fanon and, and others who talked about this, you know, decades before I did. Right, but the events of January six and the ways in which trappings of American empire really came really to the heart of of, of the capital on that day 
that really sold it for me. And, and I was like, okay, well, this is going to be the opening of this book. It's going to be the end of the book. And, and maybe it's ultimately going to be the point of the book. And, you know, it's, it's interesting when we, when we start to go through this, right? Because what's always kind of shocking to me is that Americans tend not to appreciate just how tenuous all of this is. And, you know, not to belabor a, a lot of time on, on the likes of, of Donald Trump, who anyone who knows me knows that he's a deplorable human being. And as a lifetime New Yorker, I've, I've always felt that way. He's absolutely been disgusting. And New Yorkers are proudly to say we mostly hate him. Um, <laughs> but I will, I will tack on that he is, why I don't want to spend a lot of time on him is because I think ultimately he is both important and unimportant because he's an individual that is symptom of much larger issues with the way America operates, right? So he's a manifestation of a, of a deep cancer that runs at the core of this country that I think a lot of just standard Americans seem to believe he's an outlier rather than a, a natural outcome of things. And books like yours, I feel, disabuse people of those notions that you can see moments in history where we have come close to outcomes very similar to the ones that that we saw playing out on January 6th. And I would offer for those who say, oh, America's never been fascist. I'm like, well, there's not much difference to fascism and Jim Crow and segregation, right? right. So yeah. fascism is is in the eye of the beholder, um, so to speak. That's right. So That's right. my long preamble aside, what I want to do is, is, is get your thoughts on why do people, Americans by and large, feel like these are outlier moments when you have so much history in this book that speaks to a different reality. Yeah, no, those are great questions. Um, and I, by the way, I was born in Queens, literally as far I think from from uh, Jamaica stays as you. Uh, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't claim any particular kinship with with with. Hey man, uh, my favorite. Always, a, always a shout out to anyone born in Queens, right? Michael Jordan was born in um in in Brooklyn, right? No, right. So I always shout out anyone born in New York. Yeah, um, yeah I mean. That's it's 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 a big question. Some of it is that it requires you know a deeper level of reading um, to find the, the 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 direct ties between uh, America's history of authoritarianism and you know fascism, right? As a as a as a philosophy, uh, Q Whitman did a, has a, a great book called uh, Hitler's American Model. He it's a, it's really a legal argument, but he's talking about the ways in which the Nazi race laws were uh, inspired directly by. Jim Crow, you know, the, the race laws and the so-called anti-miscegenation laws and things like that in, in, in the American South. Madison Grant, uh, who w is a, you know, one of sort of the, the, the founders of, of the eugenics movement um, and also of conservationism. He was a pioneer in, in the national parks. He was a good friend of Teddy Roosevelt. He wrote a book called The Passing of the Great Race, which Hitler called My Bible, which he basically was making the argument for uh, what's now known as you know the Great Replacement, replacement theory. So they were making the same argument. And this argument came from America and it's a Nazi Germany and it went, it helped inspire fascism, but it also never really left. So part of it is that you have to have done the reading to to know the answers to some of these things. Um, and you know, even Americans who have Either a personal uh, connection with, or personal memory of, or or familial memory of of Jim Crow, it, it has not it, it is not widely understood necessarily. You know the, the connections between this and and you know capital F fascism, right? But I think what what is bigger than that is that as part of our as our, as part of our mythology of ourselves, 
you know, we we think of ourselves as you know the the land of the free and and the home of the brave. We we are this is this is the this is the cradle of democracy. It's the cradle of freedom, and uh, you know Americans aren't even willing generally to uh, acknowledge ourselves as an empire. Even putting the e word in in the subtitle of this book was you know a a, a very gentle provocation. I'm certainly not the first to do it. It is very well founded. I think I make the case very completely. But it is, uh, you know, it's it's something that, that that Americans don't all just sort of instinctively cop to. You know, we 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 think of ourselves as, you know, we were founded in a revolution against the British Empire. We, how could we be an empire? And in the same way, the memory of World War II and some of the national myths that were very productive. I mean, they were good <laughs> national myths that were created in World War II, galvanized people into a fight against the Nazis, who absolutely were the embodiment of evil and wiped out half of my family. I mean, there's, I, I cannot, I, I can't come up with enough good reasons why it was a good idea to get everybody, you know, energized for, for a fight against them. But that required sort of digging into a sort of American self-perception and an American idea that uh, fascism and fascist ideology was an alien force that we all sort of need to put aside whatever kind of regional or factional or party differences that we had and get together to fight against. And that was a very powerful line. And it worked. I mean, there is enough in America. There are enough things in America's tradition to justify that kind of idea that, you know, this is the place where, you know, where all men are created equal and 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 that it is a country that is founded on the rule of law um, and equality before the law and not the primacy of a, of a, of a single group of, of true people or true Americans or the true Volk or whatever, that has always existed alongside these things. I mean, we, we fought a civil war over it, right? And so there was enough of that that it sold and it stuck. And so basically since World War II, fascism was something foreign to us, has held sway. And it's something that people aren't necessarily willing to question in of themselves. So, you know, thinking about going going through the book, Gangsters of, of Capitalism is, is just filled with these amazing stories that I feel have some relevant parallels or perhaps have relevant parallels to the times that we are living in now, right? You detail this business plot, you, you detail these forces that are looking to take an existing imperfect American democracy and turn it into something else. And I'm curious in in your work as a historian, as someone who's written this book, but as someone who's also spent time in in other countries that that are also wrestling with um, lack mm-hmm. of democracy, um, what are the the parallels that you see in sort of the the right wing, particularly right-wing financiers of today's anti-democracy movements. Yeah, one of the one of the things that I kept saying as I was writing this book, you know, anytime you write a book that's history or going to be marketed as history or kind of have a sepia tone cover as as mine does, the publisher or the publicists are always like, you know, well, what, you know, what we what can we do to to make this book relevant? You know, how how can we how can we pitch this and, you know, op-eds and podcasts and radio interviews to you know have it be relevant. I had the opposite problem. I was like, I wish my book would stop being so relevant. Please. I just kept yeah, I just too. kept looking. <laughs> I just kept looking at the news like every single day and 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 since and just being like stop being so 
relevant. So it cuts in a lot of different ways. And, and these ways are, are very organic because, you know, we're talking about the same country, you know, 90 years removed now from, from the business plot and, and from this era of, of the rise of fascism in Europe, and not only in Europe, also in Latin America, also in Asia. And it was very much on the minds of powerful, rich white men in the United States at the time as well. Then as now, there is this notion that it can't happen here, right? That actually is the title of a book by Sinclair Lewis, which was inspired by Smedley Butler and, and the business plot. Sinclair Lewis actually has an interesting run-in with Smedley Butler. Butler gives a speech in, in Pittsburgh in 1929, uh, which is sort of the first time that he really goes out in, in force and, and criticizes U.S. foreign policy. And Sinclair Lewis gets word of this and uh, writes a, a sympathetic anti-imperialist senator, William Bora, um, and asks him to, to undertake a, an investigation. So, so Sinclair Lewis definitely knew who Smedley Butler was and, and, and the things that happened in the business plot sort of help inspire that title, It Can't Happen Here, which is meant sarcastically. Although Saul Bellow, by the way, wrote his first short story, which he published in, in a, a student newspaper, actually the student newspaper that I used to write for, which was a response to that title called The Hell It Can't. <laughs> but all, all the things I'm talking about here are that America, you know, we have this conception of ourselves, which is also based in reality, right? That we are, you know, the land of liberty, that we are, you know, the, 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 the world's oldest constitutional republic, or I guess the ju- Dutch might have, have beef with that, with that title. But you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We declared independence from a monarchy. We, I'm saying we as if I had anything to do with it or if, as if my ancestors were even here at the time. But, there, you know, there is a legitimate claim in the United States to being a democracy, an imperfect democracy, as you say. But there's this idea that that kind of acts as a, a an inoculation. You know, our constitution of, of 1787, our Bill of Rights, our revolution are, in the national sense again, against the British Empire, inoculates us, vaccinates us against both empire and authoritarianism, monarchy. Yeah. And it's just not true. I mean, anybody, anybody I, I just had COVID and, and I'm, I'm double vaxxed and boosted. I can tell you like, you know, vaccinations help, but they don't, they aren't necessarily a panacea. And there is a long tradition of authoritarianism, of wistfulness for, you know, a single strong man, it's almost always a man to, you know, impose his will on the body politic. American democracy comes out of a Western tradition. It comes out of out of a European tradition, and that tradition itself came out of monarchy. And so, from the beginning, there have been lots of people, including in this country, who who were sort of like, well, maybe we, maybe we shouldn't get rid of all of the monarchical aspects, and that sometimes leads itself into maybe we should just have a king. Maybe we should just have you know a god, a god, you know, a philosopher king who is wise and strong and and who has the final say in everything. And throughout American history, there have been, you know, you look at the Confederacy, not a democracy by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, you know, Jefferson Davis was was hardly a even a democratically elected president, even 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 if you put aside, and there's no reason to put aside the fact that it was a society who, you know, built as 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 his unelected vice president, Alexander Stevens said, on on the cornerstone of of uh, of white supremacy. And after that, uh, experiment fails in a war. You have repeated efforts, successful, to impose various forms of authoritarianism in the South to to overthrow equality and Reconstruction, and replace it with Jim Crow and authoritarianism. 
and if not necessarily the rule by a, a single dictator, uh, but the rule by a you know a heronvoke, you know true population uh, who, despite being in the minority, um, is given all the power over everybody else. So when Smedley Butler encounters the business plot in the 1930s, it's sort of the same thing. You know, you've got, you you have these guys, the Duponts, Alfred P. Sloan of General Motors. Um, you know, these oil barons. They're saying, you know, we know best. It is best for us to keep all of our wealth. It is best for us to have all of the power, and it is best for us to to choose somebody who will maybe answer to us, but to nobody else, and will have the final say. And this line of thinking is really discredited, to say the least, by World War II. It's kind of an accident of history, a good accident from my perspective, um, that the United States ended up on the side of, of that war that we did. There are a lot of reasons that we can, you know, th- there's some philosophical reasons as well that, that we can parse, but, you know, suffice it to say, you know, if, if it was up to the business plotters, if it was up to the people who were, you know, more tied into the Nazis than the business plotters, like, you know, Prescott Bush, father and grandfather of, of the president's George Bush, you know, he, he wasn't involved in the business plot, despite some uh, incorrect reporting, because he was too sympathetic to the Nazis. He was actually like he was actually in league with the German, you know, National Socialist Workers Party as as part of a business venture, uh, you know, with the, with the shipping and, and, and steamship line uh, that ended up having him investigated by the same congressional committee that, that investigated Smedley Butler. If it was up to guys like that, if it was up to Charles Lindbergh. Yeah, we'd be all in. <laughs> yeah, we we might have we might have joined the Axis, or we might have just you know stayed neutral and 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 you know maybe done like sort of a lend lease. Yeah, let the let the chips exactly fall where they may. Right, and but I think at the very beginning, the American project imperfect, right? Like, and that's me being super kind, right? Like, people who are resistant to the idea of American authoritarianism are, in my mind, dismissing the reality of. 200 plus years of slavery, right? Like that's, it doesn't get any more authoritarian than that, right? You own other human beings. So I think American democracy, imperfect, has developed and evolved alongside these authoritarian practices, right? Like they existed and coexisted together. And yet I think to lay lay persons, these these ideas are, are... they're incompatible ideas. And I think what the book does so coherently is lay out proof of this, but also through the character of Smedley Butler, we have a someone who was an agent of this, a true believer in these colonial exploits of military and of violence, right? So I don't want to make it sound like this is like an Indiana Jones thing. This is like military violence against people of of varying countries and changing the course of their reality, right? For American business and political interests, he rejects this, right? Like he he comes to the other side to, you know, famously wars a racket, right? So how do we get to like this, these kind of stories and narratives are, I think, safe to say buried, right? And you and others have, have worked to uncover these stories, right? To tell these stories. So the, the question finally is in, in the uncovering, you know, how do we put these stories front and center in the clearly anti-democratic spaces that we have now, 
right? Like a Peter Thiel is no different than a Prescott Bush, right? Probably worse, right? So I'll leave it there, but I want you to kind of reflect on that change of heart in this one person, this unburying of these stories, and then the parallel to, again, the fascist light of a, of a Peter Thiel. And I've been banging, I've been banging him a lot lately. So listeners who are listening to this are going to be like, damn, you're on Peter Thiel a lot. Like he's an asshole. So he, and, and a powerful one and a powerful, powerful, (laughs) um, who's very influential and poised to put probably two senators, uh, essentially in his employ into the Senate in the fall, who knows with Blake Masters and, and JD Vance. Yeah, no, we can, we can talk about him as well. Look, one of the things that doing this research really bared to me is sort of a a calculus, a way of understanding the way that the United States has this congruent histories of both being a democracy and an authoritarian state, um, or, or, or a state that is at least extremely comfortable with authoritarianism. And to me, and this is not the only way to look at it, but it's, it is a thing that very much comes through my book, it's, it very much comes through my research, very much comes through the life of, of Smedley Butler and since, is you know, essentially that we are a democracy for our citizens, for everybody else, good luck. The question becomes, and this has been this has been the case essentially throughout American history, right? So going all the way back to to slavery, that is essentially that's essentially what's happening. It's what's it's what's happening in the minds of men like you know Thomas Jefferson. I'm in Charlottesville, so like you know I I can basically like really like look out my window and 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 see a little bit Monticello. It's kind of a, a behind a mountain, and you know uh, James Madison also nearby. Jefferson owned 600 human beings while he was saying all men are created equal. How could he do that? Because his idea of men, his idea of of the people for whom the Declaration of Independence applied, for whom the notes on the state of Virginia applied, for, for whom his governing philosophy applied, were the people who counted. And the, the people from Africa, the people who were, in his mind, not people, anything could be done to them. Essentially, none of this philosophy applied to them, and he wrestled with this in in some different ways in 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 his lifetime. Although he he even as he supposedly you know sometimes became a little bit less comfortable with slavery, although he never he never he never gave anybody their freedom, including by the way his own children. But he very then uh, helped create the doctrines of of white supremacy, where he was trying to kind of find a scientific explanation for like, well, you know, how can I say? that all men are created equal and yet these people do not count as as men to me and this continue this continues throughout slavery continues to you know it, it also goes back even uh, farther than that with uh, the genocide and 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 the theft of land and, and the ethnic cleansing of the native peoples of of North America uh, throughout the 19th century with the expansion of the United States manifest destiny you know across the the, the continent and in Smedley Butler's era it be- becomes overseas imperialism and what is happening throughout Butler's life is that Butler is fighting for democracy. I wouldn't even put it necessarily in scare quotes because I think he really believes he's fighting for democracy. He's fighting for what he has been told democracy is. For him, democracy is freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, You know, the, the freedom to vote in the United States for people who count. And everybody else sort of has to take a back seat. And so what he does is he overthrows you know, he he disbands the the Haitian Parliament at gunpoint. He overthrows democracy and crushes a a, a movement to re-implement it in uh, Nicaragua. 
Uh, he helps uh, destroy a republic and turn it into a wholly owned U.S. colony in the Philippines, et cetera, et cetera. And what happens with Butler, and this is a very unique thing about him, and this is why I spent you know five, seven years writing a book about him, is because he has this moment of insight, in some degree, a low bar to clear, although a lot of people don't clear it, where in the 1930s, after he retires, Toward the end of his time in the Marines, honestly, his, including his, his last um, stint in, in China during the, the beginning of, of the Chinese Civil War, which is what gives us, by the way, the, the current crisis over the, you know across the Taiwan Strait, Butler starts to see imperfectly and haltingly the ways in which, wait a second, some of the people, some of the politicians, the bankers, the powerful men... Um, who are, you know, who have sent me abroad to destroy republics, to destroy democracy, to destroy freedom of conscience, to destroy freedom of speech, to rig elections. They are not content with only doing that to people out there. If they think that their power or their wealth by the New Deal or uh, their influence is threatened, at home, they're willing to do it to the people that I thought counted. They're willing to do it to, you know, uh, the good people of the main line of, of Philadelphia, you know, the people I grew up with in, in Westchester. You know, what we are seeing today in, in you know, 2022, uh, you know, I, you know I, was, I was talking about, you know, how, you know, to, to some extent, uh, the way that, you know, World War II worked out was, you know, in some ways a, a, an accident of history, but it worked. And among other things, it really discredited the idea of fascism and dictatorship in this country for generations. So we so we thought. <laughs> well, I mean, what what's happening right now is that the generation that fought World War II and the generation their age and, and older who remembered the rise of fascism and how little it took to, to see Mussolini come to power and to see Hitler come to power and you know how close it could have been um, to having similar things happen in the United States, they're gone. So so it's not an accident. You know, maybe this is too much of a, of a historistic uh, argument, but to me, it's not an accident that the man who oversaw uh, the Capitol Putsch on January 6, 2021, who did so much to, you know, find me the votes in uh, uh, Georgia, and who still today, uh, you know, cl essentially claims to be the president or, or the president in exile, was born in 1946. He was born the year after Germany and and Japan surrendered, so he didn't grow up. In that world, and you know, even the, the memory of, frankly, left-wing totalitarian state in the Soviet Union, of Stalin, people who really remember Stalin at the height of Stalinism, they're getting super old and falling out of power, and have no fond memories of that. <laughs> mal, mal, the same thing. And, and so, you know, I, I think what's happening here is that there's a tendency, and there is a playbook, and there is a wealth of thought for people like Peter Thiel to draw on, which says, you don't like the way the world's going right now. You think that like, you know, things could be better. Climate change seems like a big threat. You know, inflation is high. Uh, you know, there seems to be social unrest in, in, in various different ways. And there are all these younger politicians uh, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and, you know, other people who sort of, you know, came out of, out of like the Bernie Sanders movement who are saying, let's raise taxes, let's claw back some of your ill-gotten gains. Wouldn't it be better <laughs> if we didn't have this pesky democracy anymore? Because wouldn't it be better if we just had the people who I think counted choosing their leaders? 
And that circle can continue to get smaller and smaller and smaller. First, you 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 first you exclude you know trans people or you know non-binary people or people you know who, whose whose gender identities you know you find you find threatening or ultra, right? Yeah, or fuzzy. <laughs> then and then you know maybe you know sexual orientation and then you know you you write certain religions out or you write one religion into you know full control. You start writing women out. You you start legislating women's bodies. You write people of color out. You make it so people you make it so black people can't vote. Um you make it so you know uh you know Latinos who are going to vote for Democrats in some states can't vote. You arm the populace knowing that the people that you're arming are going to include a large number of, you know, 18 to 22-year-old men who are going to be, you know, going to take their their uh their AR15s um and shoot up, you know, supermarkets and Walmarts um to intimidate people, to broadcast the message that you you don't belong here. You are here with our permission, the permission of the people who count. Yeah, it's the largesse of of these increasingly minority wealthy folks, right? It's a, a business cabal, right? It's a new, it's a new, it's a new business plan. And then, and then ultimately, ultimately, you know, it, what it ends up being, and and you see this, and you see this in the Confederacy as well. This is why it was sort of, you know, riffing on the fact that like even Jefferson Davis wasn't really like, you know, forget the fact that that, that, that the enslaved people couldn't vote. Like he was, he wasn't a democratic leader in any sense. It's because when you have those kinds of authoritarianism, they lead to even more authoritarianism. And Butler saw that. Butler belatedly, it's too late for the people of, of Haiti and Nicaragua and the Philippines, but but he saw he saw the way that that could happen here. He is long gone. The generation that remembers that era, or even that were you know little kids in that era, are are now gone. And 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 I think that is why that is why there have always been people Murray Rothbard. I mean, there have oh, there have been people throughout. You know, even uh, you know William F. Buckley. You know, it, uh, you know, talking of praising uh, Pinochet, uh, the you know the, the Chilean dictator who uh, you know takes power, um, you know, in, in, in a U.S. back coup. Those people have not, never gone away, but now in 2022, they can get a hearing without just being dismissed out of hand in a way that even 10, 20 years ago, they, they would have been laughed out of the room. And and I think we're going to see in the next coming years, even more of those guardrails going down. And yeah, and so and so for them, there's this long tradition uh, it's an American tradition. It's a it's a European traditions. There are Latin American traditions. There are Asian traditions that they can draw on to say ultimately, you know, here is a bunch of fancy language and a bunch of fancy arguments uh, that all point in the same direction, which is that only I count and only people who agree with me at any given moment are the ones who should be allowed to participate fully in in society. And it's interesting. I don't want to go too far down this road, but I will make an observation that so so many of these of these voices are on the right that that are leaning, fuck leaning, that are full fully engaged in authoritarian movements, looking for minority rule. You know, I, I think about Nancy McLean's book. She, she's a professor at, at Duke, and and she wrote a book, um, Democracy and Change. She's written other books, but I, I interviewed her for that book a long time ago on a, on a different show. And she talks about this, this notion that 
you know, even in the early stages of American democracy, it's always been minority rule, right? Like it's never, the idea of democracy was one thing, but the reality of it was, you know, if you're a property owning white male, then you can vote. Now everybody else, not so much, right? And and, and how do we maintain that? But I, I find interesting and Again, this isn't really a fully fledged thought, but I'm thinking how like someone like a Peter Thiel, someone like the various lunatics in in Congress, whether it's um Marjorie Taylor Greene or fuck her name is and Lauren Boebert, right, in a way try to insulate themselves by from critique by I'm a woman, right? I can't be anti woman. Peter Thiel, it's famously is is I don't know how famously, but he's known gay can say, oh, how can I be a bad guy? Like, I'm from this community, right, that has been historically mistreated. Glenn Greenwald, honestly. Yeah, Glenn Greenwald's another lunatic. Yeah, he's he's another one who's just gone full fashion. Yeah, they weaponize these realities to sell the fascist story, right? So I'm I'm curious as we, as we move, like you said, more of these guardrails are going to come down, right? We're going to find the Tories in England, right? They're going to likely have a woman or someone of color to be the next prime minister, right? But clearly your color ain't your kind, as we as we say in the hood, right? Like just because you have this person doesn't mean they're in your best interest. Look at Clarence Thomas, right? One of the worst human beings that I could imagine in my lifetime, right? I mean, if you, if you look at this, I don't know um, when this is going to air or if, if you want to take the, out the timestamp. It happened this week in Kansas, the overwhelming rejection of an amendment to you know, a, a forced birth amendment to outlaw or, or to allow you know the complete outlawing of, of abortion. And while anybody who cares about human life and the rights of women and, and pregnant people, et cetera, um, would be celebrating that, but I would not be shocked at all if these anti-democratic forces are looking at this and they're like, this is, you know, Peter Thiel's like, this is what I'm talking about. If you allow people to vote, we have this six guys in one building in Washington, D.C., who just told everybody else essentially that we can get rid of abortion. And then you have like a whole state worth of people that overwhelmingly as a state vote Republican saying, no, we don't like yeah. that. Nah. <laughs> that's, another, that's another perfect example of like, you know, democracy can work. And as, and as long as democracy can work, it is going to threaten people who feel like the demos in whatever con conception it has at that moment are going to threaten, they're going to break their, their, their rights. They're going to threaten their interests. They're going to put them in a kind of country that they, you know, or a kind of world that they don't want to live in. And one of the things that ends up happening is that this actually ends up, this anti-democratic persuasion can be very attractive to a lot of different people for a lot of mutually exclusive reasons. Yeah. They're not all in the same bucket. Exactly. Right? And, and so, and so, you know, and so you have, you know, a, a Clarence Thomas, you know, who essentially is a theocrat and like an authoritarian elitist. He certainly, I can imagine him like casting a vote to like overturn loving v. Virginia, even though that would then, you know, threaten to make his own marriage. Negate his own his own marriage, but oh, but maybe he would want out. Who knows? But you know what? He'd probably find a way to exactly. It'll be an exactly. exemption, right? Like that's how these people are. They will find the way to benefit them. Yeah, a grandfather clause, if you will, benefit themselves at the at the expense of 
of everyone else. It becomes this cascade. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you have Peter Thiel who, you know, he, so, so Peter Thiel is making common cause with people who want people like Peter Thiel to essentially, you know, be thrown into concentration camps. And I think, you know, and, and, and you see this over and over again in, in the rise of, of authoritarian movements all over the world. You know, look, politicians is a game of coalitions, regardless of which direction your politics are, are headed. The difference is that when you have an authoritarian coalition where everybody just has a slightly different conception of what their kind of authoritarian it was going to look like, you end up with, you know, Knights of the Long Knives, as happened in, in Germany, where sort of, you know, the the people who were like, Hitler was like, you know, we, we want a very, you know, capitalist you know, me-centered authoritarianism. And there were some other people who had had some some actual, like, you know, a, a little more socialist ideas and, and things like that, or just, you know, weren't so into just like the Adolf Hitler is the center of everything school, and they all got killed. And I think that, that that's something that, you know, anybody who's who's even considering getting on board with a, a program to disenfranchise large numbers of people to, uh, and, and also, by the way, um, to to continue imperialism. I mean, this is, I mean, this is the thing. You know, as 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 my um, you know as my book was coming out, uh, my friend uh, Asmat Khan, who uh, was writing for for the New York Times Magazine, published this incredible. She she led a team of reporters. This incredible reporting on drone strikes and the ways in which the United States, in for uh, two decades, um, had just murdered with impunity. People, particularly in 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 Iraq, uh, Syria, and Afghanistan, was was uh, the focus of her research. The hotbed, exactly. And and she won the the Pulitzer Prize. They won the Pulitzer Prize for that, very well deserved. And that's the sort of thing that even liberals, even liberals, you know, can can look at something like that and be like, well, those people don't count. They're not. This is what we're supposed to be doing, right? It's fine. It's fine to kill people. It's fine to execute people without trial. It's fine to literally send a robot <laughs> to fly through the sky and kill a wedding, even people at a wedding, even if in, in some cases they are American citizens who die because they don't count because they're outside our conception of us. And, and what is dangerous, and there are lots of different ways to talk about it. There's, you know, the poem that everybody always cites about the Holocaust, but it's just because it's just because it's true that once you, once you have a group of people come to power who want to constrict democracy, who want to constrict the number of people in the society who have freedom, who have a say, who have a right to live, that circle will continually get smaller and smaller and smaller until ultimately, almost inevitably, it will exclude you. Yeah. <laughs> I think I want to I want to jump in because we're talking about like the people who don't count, right? And I think often that is that is captured by this idea of land, right? And you you mentioned this in in the book around Teddy Teddy Roosevelt talking about like wasted space, right? Like what is the space that exists that we can consider to be just there's nothing there, right? Whether or not there's there's people there, the goal is to kind of remove those people. So you you th- that's part of the empire and imperial project, right? And this we see this happen in Honduras, in in Haiti, in Philippines. In Nicaragua, and as I as I read these these stories, it takes me back to being a kid growing up in the eighties, hearing about these same spaces, right? Like it contextualizes why we're still talking about right, right. these spaces, right? Like we're in the middle of the Iran Contra 
mm-hmm. you know, scandal because of the groundwork that was laid in, in, in the book, right? So how do we think about this idea of, of space and what's wasted, what's not, who, like, who deserves to be there, right? Because I think geographies can also obscure humans, right? In the same way you, you mentioned like, oh, this is something happening like over there to most people, like I said, even liberals, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, to any extent that you understand those places, people and histories, all they are to you is conflict and resources, right? So whatever is going on there kind of should be, shouldn't it be going on there, right? Like, was it, what was the mantra? We fight them there so we don't fight them here, right? Like, it's all about geography. So in, in the time we have left, before we get to the final two segments of the show, I want you to kind of just play with that notion of, of space and how it matters in the conversations that we're having and that you surface in the book. Yeah, so that's a really good question. Yeah, and space space is at the heart of of all of this. I mean, people's people's building building walls to 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 keep people out, even sort of you know theoretical walls that are that are rhetorical walls. Um, you know, segregation was all about space. It was all about keeping those people who don't count over there, and keeping the people who do count and do have power over here. And and that was done often with with physical barriers like like the U.S. interstate system. Jed Purdy, Jed Purdy Britain, I think is his name now, who's a friend of mine, wrote, he wrote about uh, this question of, of waste. Um, and as he notes, the word waste comes from uh, the Latin root vastus, which is also where we get the word vast from, right? It's, it's, essentially, it's, it's essentially a root that has given us all kinds of different meanings of space. And the idea of the vastest, of the waste, is that it is land that is unpropertied, it is wasted, it is it is being misused, it is unproductive, it is perhaps harmful in some ways. And this applies in both, you know, the sense of literal land, literal geography. So when Teddy Roosevelt is talking about the waste, he is he's drawing on this, and this is also from, from Purdy's book, After Nature, he's drawing on this sort of providential sense in in American history that essentially originally the 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 native americans they were on the land but they weren't using the land they weren't being productive with the land and this was a waste they were they were wasting the land and so it was better it was better for the world to remove them to kill them so that this land could then be used in productive ways to grow food to make money you know, in, in, in the original sort of theocratic providential sense, you know, to, to, to honor, you know, the Christian God. Uh, this was sort of used as an excuse then. This idea of waste then inserts itself into American discourse uh, and modern discourse in lots of different ways. The, another thing that, that uh, you know, I, I think about often is uh, uh, the discourse around welfare, right? The discourse around the U.S. government helping its citizens survive, feed themselves, get educated, you know, not die of disease, not die of of, of heart attacks. Yeah. To to be productive, you know, citizens. But the way in which counter-majoritarian, the authoritarian, the anti-democratic forces in American life have trained themselves and trained a lot of even liberals to talk about this is they talk about waste in the welfare system. Because what it does is it it, it turns it on its head in the same way that the, the Algonquin nation 
living on land did not mean that that land belonged to them and did not and did not mean that it was not actually better for for them to be kicked off the land and for the land to be taken from them people who are considered undeserving in american life it is considered wasteful to help them it's considered wasteful to keep them alive because because this is money that could be better spent if, if you're somebody like you know again peter Thiel, but if if you're somebody uh you know if you're, if you're on the faculty of like barry weiss's uh, uh you know university of austin it is better that that money is wasted on them but it's useful for you if you had that money and you had that power you could do something with it right i sh- i shudder that in this moment I'm. I have to have the name Barry Weiss plaguing my show. Sorry, that's a, that was a waste of a moment in your in your. Is is another deplorable, useless person? But 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 I, but I mean, but but you know, like like even I mean, like like look at look at like you know, look at Elon Musk or you know Peter Thiel or, or pick any South African billionaire. Like they they you know like they look at the world and they're like, why are we wasting money keeping these people alive? When I can colonize Mars, why are we waste? Why are we wasting money? You know, on 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 you know these people, these degenerates over there, having you know children with multiple partners and not taking care of them. When I can have children with multiple partners and not take care of them, right? Yeah, it's a gr- <laughs> and I and I love any. I, I I love that we can introduce degenerate because that's always such a like used like anytime you go back over text. <laughs> historical texts degenerate just is just a, a great catch-all for everybody that some asshole wants to get rid of and this exactly exactly <laughs> and that's and that's what and, and and you know again like early 20th century in in, in the period of, of smedley butler and, and teddy roosevelt that's also how they're talking they're like who are these filipinos they're just degenerate people they don't count they don't know no. how to use their land they don't know how to use it i mean people still today i have conversations all the time with people who, who who you know talk to me about haiti you know people who are people who are generally you know i would just say like polite nice you know good well-mannered people and they're like oh you know those haitians like they don't know how to use their land they're ignorant farmers they you know really that island is wasted on them and and these these ideas still percolate today and all of these things i mean to a certain extent they are justifications right for just doing the the horrible theft that you want to do anyway but they're also but there's also a real evil but there's a real philosophical consistency in there where it's just like yeah like why should you have your house you're not using it why should you have your family you're not using it you're just all you're doing all you're doing is is taking resources away from me and you're taking power away from me and you're taking money away from me and i the high iq you know world historical genius who who's are, who 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 has you know the, the reason why i'm so rich and so powerful is because clearly you know merit earned me every one of these the myth of merit yeah, every one of these ducats and then you know so why why should you why should you have a vote this vote is wasted on you and it's a very powerful thought and and to somebody uh you know for whom it is congruent with other lines of thought that they have and it goes to a place that they want to go which is their own enrichment their own comfort their their own uh imperiousness their own imperviousness to to, to any kind of consequence it's it, it can be very hard to 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 talk them out of it yeah to to break away from that you know i i i love this you know it's it's and i got to like of course call people out that i detest like 
Barry Weiss, Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, all the all the usual suspects that everyone who listens to the show know that I love to bang because they're idiots. Um, I want to get us to Off the Dome and the Drop. And Off the Dome are just quick, rapid-fire questions. Well, answers. The questions might not be so rapid-fire. But um, I'm going to do my best here. So these are like one-word answers? or Yeah, one, maybe two, three words, you know? <laughs> um, but they're not meant to be super deep, just more fun. So as an author, as a historian, if you were writing your own autobiography, obviously you're writing your autobiography, own autobiography is redundant. You're writing your autobiography. What would be your the title? Oh, God. <laughs> might, actually might be it it might be oh god um that could be taken the wrong way because it wouldn't have my tone of voice i do not have a rapid fire answer for that it, it, it i feel like i'm i'm slowly writing that memoir really title tbd just in terms of my life <laughs> title tbd that might maybe, maybe that's the title that kind of seems like a compliment <laughs> Yeah, but you know, I'm not gonna. You're you're coming off COVID. I'm not gonna stress you, man. If if you had to think of like, you know, Smedley Butler, we're not letting you off the hook, dude. You were a dick mm-hmm. for most of your life, but you had this epiphany, right? Everyone in the spirit of abolitionist movements, we should always have forgiveness and all that kind of stuff, right? So I try to be the mm-hmm. shepherd, right? But having said that, if you had to think of a rogue. Mount Rushmore of business people, people who history doesn't know who they are in the same way that a lot of people don't know who Smedley Butler is. But even like, for example, quick aside, I knew the whole war is a racket Uh paragraph, but didn't know the extent to which he was part of the shit, right? So in that vein, right? Like two, maybe two or three folks that you think are, are business people or kind of these historical military folk that would make like kind of a, a rogue Mount Rushmore that we should be aware of. And then we'll do our own research. So, 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 so these are people who did not redeem themselves. These are people who. No, these are people who, who have. Oh, people who have redeemed Like themselves. the Smedley Butlers of the world. Yeah. So they're like kind of, they've gone rogue. Oh, interesting. They've broken out of okay. the business military construct and have now said, you know what? Fuck this. Business people. <laughs> right. Like two or three. I'm trying to think of I'm trying to think of business people who who you know in the epilogue of gangsters I talk about people in the military who no, that's cool you know two two recent ones are, are Chelsea Manning and and Reality Winner mm-hmm. another one was uh, Hack Hackworth during during the Vietnam War David Shoup the the um, commandant of the Marine Corps actually at the beginning of Vietnam uh, who was who despite being the commandant of the Marine Corps was was outspoken against escalation. Um, and served, by the way, with Smedley Butler in in China in the 1920s. Uh, you know, those are those those are all those are awesome. Those names. are all examples of people who who were part of some bad shit, and then were like, you know what? I think I might have been part of some bad shit. Go another way. Awesome. And my last off the dome is, and and this again, this may be one thing. Like, what do you wish was the one thing as a historian that more Americans knew or better understood? As this is, it could be a concept of a term, just something. Ah, that's a good question. There's so much. <laughs> um, <laughs> the one thing that I wish Americans knew or better understood. I mean, this isn't boring answer because it's the thing I wrote. You know, the the entire book about about you know an empire, the fact that we are and and continue to be and and have long been an empire. Awesome. You know, I've, I've had, you know, so many conversations where people, I mean, I just had a, just a horrible moment on Twitter, uh, where I, I incurred the wrath of a, uh, of a person who describes himself as a fascist in, in his, uh, 
Twitter bio. And I was, and all these people were coming at me and they were all, you know, saying it was an argument about slavery. And in the course of claiming that they were not at all in any way defending the transatlantic slave trade, they were also saying that it is impossible to dispute that black people in America are much better off than they would have been if they had remained in Africa. And this is this is why I don't engage with people like this on on any on any platform. <laughs> and they and, they, and like they were saying this all. One of them was actually, I believe, a, a black man uh, who's a who's a professor at an HBU. Actually, he seems hey? to be a rogue. Color ain't always your kind. And I, <laughs> I I land there all the time. And I'm I'm like the thing that I'm trying to explain in this conversation. I'm like, there's this thing called colonialism. Colonialism, neocolonialism, neoliberalism all the different flavors of it. Like Africa <laughs> is not a static state of ma- nature <laughs> that has not existed isolated from the rest of the world. Like, you know, the idea that, I mean, first of all, they're really nice parts of Lagos, and other things, but like, but, but even putting that aside, like the idea that like, you know, impoverished parts of, of Africa uh, would necessarily be that way if it hadn't been for centuries and ongoing forms of colonialism and neocolonialism, you know, courtesy of, you know, the IMF and the World Bank, et cetera. It's just, it's people have this idea that even when they, and I, I would say this, and maybe this is actually a valid thing to, to to say here or cut in if your editor can find a way to use it, is that I think, you know, to some extent, even once you've sort of gone on the journey with me and Smedley um, through, through Gangsters of Capitalism, there is a way in which, and I tried to write my way around this by, or through this, by, by going to the countries and talking about the way that, that things are connected. But mm-hmm. even then, and maybe, you know, there's more to be done, I think it's very possible for p- people to hear this stuff and say, that was terrible. Didn't we used to be shit? And isn't, isn't it so great that that's all over? And yeah, yeah, we've moved on. And it's not. And and that's the thing that I want people to understand is that this is an ongoing story. You could write, and maybe I will write Gangster Absolutely. Gangster part two and part three and part four. Yeah. Exactly. The remix. <laughs> the unfortunate remix. I want to get us to the drop. And the drop, like I said, is a um suggestion, a thought of of anything, a piece of something that our listeners can can check out and interact with, you know, I'll, I'll go first. My drop is actually a show that I picked up very recently and it's just fun. It's like a teen drama set in Italy um, called The Diary. And it's kind of not like Dawson's Creek, but when I say teen, I mean like it's that kind of age group. And what's interesting to me about it, beyond just the, us- the usual basic kind of shit that all those shows have, is that in a country like Italy that is wrestling with its own sort of neo-fascist, mm-hmm. fascist demons. And has, and it has done in, incredible work toward demonizing migrants and people who are coming to their country is strangely, from a culture perspective, really engaged in having like alternative perspectives. Not that this show deals with those things, but it's it has like characters of color it has characters that are kind of exploring their hmm. their sexuality and for someone like myself who spent a lot of time in Italy I understand how those conversations are actually hmm. quite verboten so to see them on like a Netflix show and and not characterized as like something to be wrestled with right like as as one character kind of talks about his sexuality and these are like 13 14 year old kids everyone around them is like oh cool great 
You know, it's not like now he's he's out and it's a it's a mm. point of conflict, mm-hmm. right? So I just found it interesting again as as Italy kind of bounces into this weird, very conservative fascist place that their culture is telling a different story and in in a weird way that sets up potentially for a better way forward than it might appear on the surface, not discounting the the terrible people like Savini mm-hmm. and others that are dead set on yeah, exactly. the brown shirts, exactly. right? <laughs> so, so that's my drop. The Diary on Netflix, teen drama that's light, but maybe tells a different story about the future of a place like Italy. Yeah, no, that sounds that sounds like a great show. So what's your drop, my friend? I'll just tell you the book I'm reading right now. Uh, it's a novel, sci-fi novel by Ursula K. Le Guin called The Dispossessed. Awesome book. Yeah, it's uh, I had never I had never read her before. Um I'd been meaning to for years and I'm not all the way through it yet, so I can't tell you if it's if it's good until the end, but it's been really really good so far. Um but the the basic premise is um that it is about Twin planets, um, they, they each consider the other to be uh, their moon, one of which is an anarchist planet, essentially, and the other one is is uh, uh, the word that she uses, propertarian planet, and it's, uh, it's terrific. It's a fantastic ride, um, and I would say that in addition to all of the things that it has to say about politics and groupings and, and identity, it is also a, a real trip to read um, while also raising a two-year-old, because the sort of essentially the main character, at least at the beginning of the book, is he's sort of from the anarchist planet, um, and he's sort of visiting the propertarian planet and trying to figure out like, oh man, like there are all these like you know stratifications of society, and like there's a room with a, a shit stool where like <laughs> it's just full of drinking water, and it's just for me. And then I like put down the book and then, and then my daughter is like having this, she's like, this is all for me or is this, is this, this is daddy's, this, these are daddy's undies. These, these, yeah. Um, it's- <laughs> undies. That, that adds another valence that, that that's a real trip. These yeah. are the parallels, man. Little, little, little did she know, right? <laughs> when she was- I wish I'm like, I'm like, I like, I'm kind of like, <laughs> you know what? I kind of wish I wasn't teaching you this. I kind of wish, I kind of wish you were more like <laughs> I kind of wish you were more like the the main character of this book. It's 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 a great ride, yeah. and that is a great drop. You know, I I want to thank you again for like mm. re-upping with me because the, I think the book is is so important. Like I said, it parallels so many things, and as you said so eloquently, you know, this is an ongoing project, right? So we're going to be back having this conversation until we put an end to this. Gangsters of Capitalism 2 and 3, you know, the, the yeah, gangsters yeah. keep coming, right? It's like truly a, a perfect way to 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 highlight them, right? The, the five families just keep reforming. So, Jonathan, I want to thank you again for, for being on the deep dive with me. Yes, thank you. This is a great conversation. Thanks. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.